Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. I'm learning to play basketball now, which I thought was appropriate since I bought a team. And the coach has me doing a lot of air shooting, no ball. And it's just foundational, foundational, foundational. In business, a lot of times people like shoot with the ball without doing the fundamental work before. We need worthless land. Let's find 200,000 acres. Let's get 5 million people to move there. The land would be worth a trillion dollars. The community then would form an endowment to basically provide the most advanced social services in the world. It's easier to do a big idea than a small idea. If you said, hey, start a small business, make it profitable, I want to make a couple million dollars a year, I'd be like, I'm out. The strategy is to come in early with a really big check, like pre-seed, with just a founder and a big idea. Something that could be worth $100 billion or more. And we'll give a $10 million check in 48 hours. That's Mark Lorre, the founder of Quidzy and Jet.com, who earlier this year left as head of e-commerce at Walmart and has since made some bold bets, including investing $1.5 billion to buy the NBA's Minnesota Timberwolves alongside Alex Rodriguez. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of The Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Mark because at a time of intense economic and societal uncertainty, he sees almost endless opportunity for transformative new initiatives, from a $500 billion city in the desert to new $100 billion companies across multiple industries. Lori has a system for bringing big ideas to fruition, one that he believes applies equally to startups, the NBA, and a new, more equitable, sustainable model for urban life. If that seems wildly ambitious, well, that's what Lori's all about, using the tools of entrepreneurship to challenge assumptions and drive change. It would be crazy, he says, to waste the opportunities in front of us. Oh, and he's looking for big-thinking founders to join him on this journey. For the right idea and the right person, he says, he's prepared to invest $10 million in 48 hours. Any takers? Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. 
Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Mark Laurie, a founder of both Quidzy and Jet.com, sold to Amazon and Walmart, respectively. He's an entrepreneur who has dramatically impacted our retail landscape, although his interests are much broader, as we'll be discussing. Mark, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks to be here, Bob. So earlier this year, you decided to leave Walmart about five years after selling Jet.com to the company. And now suddenly you have wide open space in front of you. But instead of kicking back and resting on the fruits of that labor, you have a whole slew of initiatives underway from plans to build a new city from scratch uh, to buying an NBA team, the Minnesota Timberwolves to a range of new startups and investments. I am eager to dig into all of that stuff. But first, I, I want to ask you about your mindset at this time. This is something we focus on a lot at Masters of Scale. Why didn't you just kick back after leaving Walmart? Like, what, what motivates you at this point? Is it the same or different from what motivated you at other times in your career? No, it's the same. I love it. It's fun. It's not work. I enjoy building stuff from nothing. You know, if you look at it like an athlete and you're sort of like in the single A and then double A and then triple A, that's great, but it's pretty obvious like you want to get to the majors and then you get to the majors and then you want to make an all-star team and then you want to win a championship. You want to be an MVP. And to me, it, in business and entrepreneurship, it seems sort of obvious. Like you've got all this experience and you've got the ability to raise more capital, hire better people. It'd be crazy not to leverage that, to waste that opportunity is the way I look at it. So tell me about Tolosa, this magical city that you've envisioned. I mean, entrepreneurs usually start with sort of small focused ideas and then they iterate and then expand. And you're starting with a pretty grand image here. Like, where did this idea come from? Did you like go to Disney World and say, oh, I want to create my Epcot? Like, where does this come from? Yeah, well, first off, I always come from the point of view that it's easier to do a big idea than a small idea. I find it really hard. If you said like, hey, start a small business, make it profitable. I want to make a couple of million dollars a year. I'd be like, I'm out. Like I, that seems way too hard. I don't know how you do it. But I think the bigger the idea is, the fewer the people there are playing in the space. So I always like, you know, thinking about how to make the idea even bigger. But when it comes to the city, it really wasn't about, hey, I, I want to build a city. It, it didn't start like that at all. The city is just a tactic to a much bigger vision of testing a new model for society. Like many Americans, I think I've just been frustrated watching what's happening in America, wondering, you know, with all this material progress that we've made over the last hundred years, why there's still so many people barely getting by? Why are we all not winning here? And so it sent me down a deep dive researching and I came across this book, Progress and Poverty, by Henry George. He was an economist, late 19th century. It turns out the book was the second most read book next to the Bible in its time. And he basically proves what the problem is with capitalism. And so that got me really fired up because an entrepreneur is always looking for what's that little hook or that little thing you can change that makes all the difference. I'm a big believer in capitalism and the power of it, but there are definitely some drawbacks Without government intervention and antitrust, we'd continue to have monopolies and the workers would bear the brunt of that. And we saw that happen in the early days of capitalism in America 
while the government, I think, does a pretty good job now of preventing that and making sure that there is fair competition. And after reading this book, it occurred to me that you know land ownership is sort of this silent monopoly. As people own land and there's only a finite amount of it, and you sort of have control over it, and you basically are able to extract as much value as the market will let you. And that's sort of what a monopoly would do. And so it seems to me we missed it. We just missed it uh, on land ownership. And I could talk for a long time about exactly the economic theory behind why it's true. But accepting it's true, I said, okay, well, how do you change it? It's really something you had to start from the beginning. So that's where the city comes into play. We need worthless land, call it the Nevada desert. Let's find 200,000 acres. Let's have the land be owned by a community foundation, a not-for-profit foundation. And if this foundation could get 5 million people to move there and create a real thriving city, the land would be worth a trillion dollars. And with that trillion dollars of land value, the community then would form an endowment, probably sell off the land, diversify, and have like a trillion dollar endowment where it would earn, call it $50 billion a year, and it would use that $50 billion to basically provide the most advanced social services in the world, healthcare, education, jobs training, affordable housing. And it really would bring everybody along with this wealth creation. So that's the idea. I'm calling it equitism. It's sort of capitalism with just this one little twist. It's a small twist, but it's a really impactful twist. And I think if we're able to execute it, it's going to change how people think about capitalism. I think we haven't taken enough shots as a country. We were incredibly innovative, tried a lot of things early on. And so hopefully this encourages other people to take shots, test things on a large scale to see if we can make improvements. There's no way we've got it perfectly right, in my opinion. And so you're, you're, you're using this as like a, a test bed for this, for this new model, which includes more sustainability as part of the city too. But the idea is that like other cities, other locations will then, if it works the way you hope it will, will ad adopt pieces of this, will change their own structures? Yeah, that would be the hope. Absolutely. Since we are building the city from scratch, we're seeing an incredible opportunity to not only make it the most equitable city in the world, but also the most sustainable. It would be powered by 100% renewable energy and only use autonomous vehicles and be very family-friendly, lots of parks, very walkable, bikeable, a um, lot of nature. With a clean slate, there's a lot of really cool things we can do. And I think the other cities in, in the world could certainly learn, what does it mean when you go fully autonomous with vehicles? If you see it in action live in a city of 5 million people, it might be enough to say, you know what? Let's do the hard switch. That's one example, but there'll be you know a couple dozen probably examples of things that we do and make work that other cities can look to. And that would be the hope. That would be the dream, really. What surprised you about the reaction to this idea? You know, we've got thousands, probably more than 10,000 now inbound responses from people that are excited about it. Many of them want to move there. That's, that was surprising to me. The Saudi Arabian government has its own built-from-scratch city in the works. Yeah, no, we've talked to them. It's a very ambitious project as well. I think there's a lot of things that we could probably learn from each other. One of the approaches that we're taking, though, that is a little bit unique is we're really starting with people at the center, not technology at the center. What are the values of the city? What's the mission? How are we going to live these values in a way that no other city does? What are we going to stand for? And so we want to be the most open, the most fair, the most inclusive city in the world. And to our knowledge, 
no city that's been built has really started with a mission and a set of values and people at the center. It started more as a big real estate project. And that's what we're avoiding. I have no financial interest in this whatsoever. This is just an opportunity to give back. And because it's not a real estate project and not looking to make money, I'm hopeful that is what makes the difference in the end. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard billionaire entrepreneur Mark Laurie talk about his vision for a new city in the desert that he calls Tolosa and how a small twist can launch a big idea. Now we dig deeper into the big bets he's making, from buying the NBA's Minnesota Timberwolves to investing in a slew of new startups that he believes can be $100 billion businesses. Laurie wraps all this in a strategy he calls VCP, Vision Capital People. He stresses the need for a clear delineation between mission and values on one side and strategy and vision on the other. Winning, even winning an NBA championship, can't be the only goal, he says. Let's hear why. You've also this year become an owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves. The NBA season starts this week. It must be uh, exciting to be in that new business. Oh, very exciting. This is a childhood dream. I mean, honestly, like growing up as a little kid in Staten Island, New York, you know, I uh, was a huge sports fan. There's no words. It's like beyond exciting. And I can't wait to go to the games and, and also dig in through the lens of an entrepreneur again. So I've never owned a team before. I never built a city. I'm just trying to take the startup playbook that I've learned through doing many startups and seeing if you could apply that to a team or a city. Why the NBA as an investment? I mean, is it a business decision? Is it a passion decision? Yeah, I think it was a combination of both. So, you know, it's a lot of of money and a lot of personal wealth tied up in it. So you don't want it to go down in value, you know? Um, So I think looking at all sports, NBA seems to have the most upside, just to be global, it's progressive. The younger generation, it's probably the sport that resonates most. We love the idea that the Lynx, the WNBA team, was also part of it as well. So we've got two teams. The fact that it was sort of uh, an underdog, I would say, you know, in the league. Minnesota's a big market, and if we get it right there, this could be something real special. We're going to build the foundation the way we would in any startup. What is your mission? What's your values? How do you live them in a way that no other team does? What's the vision? Where are you going? What do you want to be in 10 or 20 years? I'm always a believer in in what I call VCP, vision capital people. If you get VCP right, everything else falls in place. That's been sort of the playbook or formula that I've used that has worked really well for me. Isn't winning the mission? People throw around mission and vision all the time, and, and sometimes it gets a little confusing. 
I always try to like separate mission and values in one bucket, vision strategy in the other. Mission and values is more the emotional connection you have, like why you exist. It's not a goal. So winning a championship would be a goal. That's on the other side of the ledger. Mission and values, it's what gets you up in the morning and what do you stand for and what do you value as an organization? You can live those values so that players, the fans can say, wow, like the Timberwolves are X, like they are the most, you know, and we haven't nailed the values yet, but let's say it was the most open team. Word gets around, you build a reputation for being open and you live it. And that's how you build a brand. And that's how you attract the best people. You need that to be the foundation of the culture, mission and values. It's so that people feel like there's something bigger than dollars and cents or even bigger than winning. That's mission and values. And on the vision strategy side, certainly part of the vision of where you want to get to in 10 or 20 years, it's got to include a championship. Like that's part of it. That's not the only thing. When you're thinking about the vision and painting a picture, it can't be singularly focused on just a championship. It has to be broader and cover more things that you want to be. But And then put three or five strategies down on paper that are the big building blocks to that vision. And then you go set up metrics. You judge yourself against those metrics. You come up with the tactics and then the organizational structure to support it. There's a certain formula and method. Like I'm learning to play basketball now, which I thought was appropriate since I bought a team. So I'm learning to play. And the coach is a great coach. And he has me doing a lot of air shooting, no ball. And it's just foundational, foundational, foundational. It sort of resonated with me. I'm like, yeah, exactly. In business, a lot of times people like shoot with the ball without doing the fundamental work before. That's what I'm really helping to sort of push here is let's do the air shooting, fundamentals. Let's not make any big moves, no big hires, no big firings. Like let's just do the hard fundamental air shooting first. And then when everything's in place, we start shooting, everyone's going to feel really good about things. So that's the approach we're taking. Yeah. And I know you made transparency a big deal at Jet, one of the valid pay scales, among other things. How, how transparent can you be as an owner with players? No, it's, it's interesting you said that because while I don't know, we haven't settled on, on the value, there'll be something in that area uh, of being more transparent, more real with players and fans. And so right now we're in a process of actually learning from the league and talking to agents, like what is okay in terms of transparency? Like how far can you go? Within the rules that are, that are in place. Yeah, within the rules, but certainly like nobody should be surprised or read about a trade in the newspaper, that sort of thing. That seems sort of obvious. I'm certainly interested in pushing the envelope because I'm a big believer in the power of transparency and what it does to build a trusting relationship and what that does to culture. There's incredible loyalty that builds over time with the players, but also we're only going to land on three values. I'm a big believer that you shouldn't have more than three values because you couldn't possibly live more than three in a way that no other team does. And also everyone that you add past three, I find to be dilutive. You just become less likely to, to live them in a really differentiated way. You've made a slew of entrepreneurial investments. I'm sure many of our listeners would love to have you as a backer. So uh, how do you decide what to invest in? So the strategy is to come in early with a really big check, like pre-seed, call it a $10 million check with just a founder and a big idea. And then we'll help the founder raise capital and hire the team. I fundamentally believe as an entrepreneur, 
there's a gap in the market where the typical approach is you're a founder, you have an idea, you get a million dollars, you build a little something, you do a little testing, you, then you put a couple more million in, you build a little more, five million, you know, and there's an extraordinary amount of finance risk and then time you take. To answer your question, it would be a founder that has a really big vision that'll require a 10 million, 50 million, multi hundred million dollar, three rounds of financing, that sort of size, something that could be worth a hundred billion or more. But it's just a founder idea. And the thinking is like, if we like the space and like the entrepreneur, and we'll give a $10 million check in 48 hours. But you said $100 billion. You're looking for folks who are really trying to do something transformative. Yeah, and it has the potential to be that. It doesn't mean it will exit for that. But if something has the potential to be a $100 billion market cap type company, then that means that there's a high likelihood that the company is going to raise at a multi-billion dollar valuation and really go for creating tens of billions of value. I think it could work in any industry if the idea is big enough. So you're you're not necessarily focused on retail, which is where you spent a lot of time more recently, but other areas. I know you're, you're an investor in Archer, in passenger drones. Yep. Right? What are the areas that you feel are ripe for disruption? You just pick any big industry. Transportation? Okay. Energy, education, healthcare, sports, you know, e-commerce, retail. The biggest sort of buckets out there, can you find a way to transform the entire industry. Wizard is a good example. And we just raised 50 million for that company. And it's basically conversational commerce. This idea that in 20 years, people won't use a search engine to order what they want. You won't like go to a website and type in toaster and get 5,000 responses and have to like weed through them. I think it's going to be much more personalized and it's going to be through text and voice interaction. And you'll just either text or say, I want a toaster, and it'll know everything about you and come up with three dead-on recommendations that fit exactly the type of price point, the types of brands you like to buy. And you'll see the three, and you'll just say number two, and number two will show up. This idea of, though, having to do the work yourself right now, which is the way retail works, I don't think is going to be a part of how people shop in the future. And that's what really Wizard is about. It's a conversational commerce, we call it. It's about the engine behind that, that's doing the work in the background. Yeah, it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, and it just keeps getting smarter with every conversation. That's the idea. It's, it's a combination of, of intelligent AI, machine learning, and really smart merchandising, sort of bringing the two together. There's a lot of talk about the scale of some tech businesses. You mentioned monopolies earlier. You've contributed to huge platforms at Amazon and at Walmart. I had a guest on recently, formerly at Google, who kind of regrets he helped make them so big, so dominant, so scaled. And I'm curious if you have any regrets or any perspective about what scaling to that size does or means. I mean, at Walmart, no, no regrets at all. I think the the retail market is is very competitive and it's very healthy. And Walmart investing aggressively to challenge the, the very formidable incumbent in Amazon was healthy for the world, for the market, for customers in general. Had we not done that, that would be worse off. I mean, you don't want to have any one company with, with such dominant share of the market because it starts to get monopolistic power. So I'm glad we did what we did. All right. Well, great. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. It was great. Thank you. 
Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.